All right, so this morning, we want to carry on with a series that we started six or seven weeks ago, something like that, called Think Different. And it's all around this talk that Jesus gives, probably early on in his public ministry, which is so popular, so famous that we've given a name to it, the Sermon on the Mount. And so you've been kind of maybe tracking with us the last several weeks. And so what I want to try to do is the impossible. I want to, in just a few minutes, bring you up to speed with where we've been. Rather than think of each weekend as a new installment around a separate theme, it's one theme. We just, we've decided to unpack it in a way that we're doing a little bit of it every weekend. So this is kind of where we've come from. Uh, the first, probably a little better than half, is taken from Matthew chapter 5. And I think there's three points that we want to draw because what Jesus is trying to do, I think, is he's trying to point out for us a different way of thinking. No, he's trying to think, help us think different things. So the first place he appears to go with us is there's a, there's a thing within human nature, and that is this desire to be a truly good person. We want to be that person. We long for it, just as Jesus' culture wanted that. And it seems the first chapter he really looks at the tyranny of trying. If you wanted to underline something, trying to be a good person. And here's the common thought, because Jesus says this over and again, you've always heard it said, but I tell you, he's not just trying to tell them something different, he's trying to get them to think different things. He says, you've always thought that bad circumstances were an indicator that God was ticked off and angry with you. And if you have bad circumstances that you would call bad circumstances, get right with God. Like, because if, if you're good with God, if you're right with him or have a righteousness, good stuff's going to come your way. To which Jesus would say, think different things. What if, just what if, the bad things that appear bad to you in the hands of a good and a loving God with folks who live in his kingdom where he gets his way, those bad things actually turn out to be some of the greatest blessings of our lives. We call it the Beatitudes. So he begins to help us think different things. And then he says, becoming a good person, it's an entirely different way of thinking. It's thinking different things. And then he goes through quite a lengthy series of thoughts on anger and where murder and lust and adultery and condemnation come from. And he says, you used to think it was just the, the, uh, the, the behavior that was the problem. No, no, think different things. It's something inside of you that needs to be addressed, which comes out in all of those other areas. So there's an entirely new way to be a good person. And you start by thinking different things. He says, I want to impact the inside of your life, where the motives of your life come from, what you think, how you think. That's what I want to deal with. And that's what he does in kind of the first chapter. And then he kind of changes tone a little bit with that same thing of thinking different. He says, now I want to address the tyranny of living to be admired by others. Kind of the same thing. It centers on the inside. It's a different kind of rightness. But rather than being right with God, it's now trying to be right with each other. So that you think I am maybe better than I am, that I know more than I do. And boy, would I like that. But it's just a tyranny. It's an oppressive thing to live under that. And he says, well, let's look at three areas that were common in Jesus' culture where people tried to do these religious activities in such a way that some, at least, thought, well, if I do those really well, you're going to admire me and you're going to think I'm more righteous, I'm more in with God than maybe I really am, but I really want you to think that. 
So last week we looked at the tyranny of almsgiving or giving to the needy, those in need, and doing it in such a way to get the admiration of people. And Jesus would say, I'm really concerned about not because you're doing it wrong, but because you're going to miss out on the reward. The reward your father wants to give you. He wants to reward you. He wants to admire you. And so do it for him because you love him because he's your father. Now this week, Jesus is going to pick a couple of other items from his culture, prayer and fasting. I want to spend more time on the prayer side of it than the fasting this morning. So let's look at what he says. This is from Matthew 6. I'm going to read the passage and I'd like to come back to it and just point out a couple of things along the way. So Matthew chapter 6, this is what he says about trying to earn the admiration of people by the way that we pray and how we fast. Matthew 6, it says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they will ever get. Again, the reward idea. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your father knows exactly what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sinned against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Oh, and when you fast, don't make it obvious, as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled. So people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is the only reward they will get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face. Then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father who knows what you do in private. And your Father who sees everything will reward you. Okay. (coughs) So Jesus has explained what the desired interior motive for giving to the needy is. Last week we looked at that. Now he turns his attention to the interior motive and thinking behind praying or having conversations with our Heavenly Father. This is how he starts. When you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites. Now, just a reminder from last week, Jesus uses the term, uh, and he uses it more than anybody else in Scripture, but he's not saying with it what we might typically mean by hypocrite, which is someone who's kind of a dastardly deceiver or somebody who has diabolical motives behind it. For Jesus, this is simply a statement where he says a hypocrite is someone who's like an actor on a stage. Not necessarily diabolical, but they're just not themselves. They're just not who they really are. They're pretending to be somebody that they really aren't. And when you converse with God, he would say, don't fake it. Don't don't try to be somebody that you're not. Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest. Isn't that freeing? That the king of the universe says, be honest. That's freeing if he says that. He says, uh, Don't be like those who love to pray publicly on street corners and in synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that's all the reward they'll ever get. Apparently there is a danger that when it comes to communication with God, that we might do it as actors on the stage who like to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues or churches where people can see them. 
Now, to this, most of us would say, no worries there. I got that one. Not happening. It's not a problem. Not a temptation for me to go stand on the street corner and start praying out loud. Just not. In fact, it's not even much of a temptation to pray publicly in this gathering. It isn't. Seldom, if ever, do I find myself falling to my knees or busting out an audible prayer in the street corners. This doesn't happen much for me. In fact, if I do communicate with God, it's a private thing. It really is. I don't even pray out loud among my family at the dinner table, or in my life group for that matter. I'm too scared, and I would probably embarrass myself when I talk with God. It's just him and me, kind of on the fly. And so this really doesn't apply. So let's move along. There's nothing here. It's hard to understand, hard to apply. Right? No such luck. Look, if I asked you this morning to stand where you are, relax, okay? And to pray a public prayer, some of you would flat out panic. Even if communication with God is something we do often, the mere thought of praying audibly in front of people would cause us to freeze and possibly break into the only memorized prayer we know. God is great, God is good, thank you for the food. Or we might bust out, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or if we watched uh, Talladega Nights, the Ricky Bobby prayer, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, but so omnipotent. We just thank you for the races I've won and the $21.2 million. <laughs> we would default to something or we would panic. Now, that's not the way it was in Jesus' culture. And remember, again, Jesus is writing into his culture. He's not writing over them 2,000 years later to our culture. He is, in the sense that careful application, careful application can help us. But firstly, he's writing to his folks, his peeps, his people that he lives with. See, in his culture, a good Jewish man was expected to pray three times a day. It was just an accepted practice. Everybody did it. And there were even certain occasions where you did it more than three times a day. But for sure, morning, afternoon, and evening is what you would do. Now, the guiding principle was, and still is actually, that communication with God was vital above all. So when the prescribed time of prayer happened, regardless of where you were or what you were doing, communication with God was so important, you just stopped doing whatever you were doing, wherever you were, in public, in private, wherever you were, and you prayed. That's what you did. The rabbinic rule, in fact, was that you, when you do that, you don't do it out loud. Though Jesus has just said, don't do it out loud. So somebody was doing it out loud. Don't do it in an invasive voice, but you do pray three times a day, wherever you are. On Elfie and my recent trip to Israel, at dawn, at New York time, because that's where our departure point was, we're flying over the Mediterranean Sea, And uh, suddenly, men around the cabin of the aircraft start getting up, and uh, they put a prayer shawl over their heads, they take cloth and wrap it around their arms, they take a box and they tie it to their heads, and they begin to rhythmically pray. They get out of their seats in the aisle, and they're rhythmically praying. 
It's the morning prayer. It's just what you do wherever you are. You just do that. They were oblivious and unconcerned, apparently, that there were other people watching them do this. Because it's just what they do. So what Jesus is not saying here is do not communicate with God. He is, duh. But he's also not saying, don't communicate with God in a public setting. He's not saying that. Even street corners are okay. He is concerned that some people in his culture are doing that so that others will admire them for their piety and assume that they are deeper spiritually and more connected to God than they really are. Back to the same theme, your motives matter. This is what Jesus is saying. The interior motive matters. Exterior action isn't always a reflection of the motive, so check your motives if that's why you're standing on street corners or getting up in airplanes so that people will notice you and go, oh my goodness, you must be tight with God. It's not the prayer that's the problem. It's the interior motive. Jesus is not poking people in the eyes here to humiliate and embarrass them and impatiently castigate them for getting their prayer thing all wrong. It's like almsgiving last week. He's deeply concerned that when they pray publicly to be admired by others, they miss out on the reward that their Heavenly Father has for them. Which is why he says this in the next verse, but when you pray, when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door. Most translations are go to your room or inner room and shut the door behind you and pray. Communicate with your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. Jesus appears here simply to encourage that the most helpful way to continue to communicate with God is to continue to communicate with God. But do it privately. But not just privately. Intentionally find a place that is private and quiet. Go someplace without people, without distractions, without interruptions, without people temptations. What are those? (laughs) Just another set of eyes that's watching you. And you might somehow be tempted to impress or gain their admiration. For Jesus, in his culture, finding a private, quiet place provided limited options for them. The average first century citizen didn't have a private office. There was no glass in the windows of their home. No private automobiles. Even going to the bathroom was somewhat of a public experience. It was a public life by and large. The most private and quiet place was likely the single bedroom that they had in their home. The average home had only one bedroom and it seldom had any windows in it at all, any openings. And you could at least pull the curtain behind the door and go privately. And it appears this is what Jesus is suggesting. You know, we're so privileged. We have lots of private spaces. Whether we find them or not is a question. Now, this is true, of course, unless you're a parent of young children. (laughs) Very little to no privacy, right? Or possibly, on a more serious side, you have special needs family member. Even an adult or a parent that live with you and they just require pretty much constant attention. Or maybe you live in a 600 square foot apartment or dorm room with three other people. It can be a challenge for us. If that's the case, we just need to be creative and so much more intentional. Now, it may be for less time and it may be less frequent, but nonetheless, Jesus would say, if you want my view, my opinion, 
consistently, regularly finding a place which is quiet and free of distractions is going to help you in your communication with your Father. Jesus is not, however, we have to understand, replacing one rule of prayer, which was the three times a day thing wherever you are, with another one, which is go, you have to go someplace private to pray. Go to your room. That's another rule. That's not what he's saying. Jesus' point appears simply to be, as you are able, intentionally find a place that is private and quiet so that you can experience uninterrupted, without distraction and temptation to be admired, so you can have a personal, meaningful, intimate conversation with your Father. To which he would say to us, when we say, how, figure it out. Are you okay with him saying that? Are you offended with that? Because that's, we're adults. He's essentially saying, figure it out. If that's what you want, if you want that intimate conversation with me, figure it out. You'll find a way. There are places. Jesus says this. He says, talk to your father. Father is Jesus' favorite way to refer to the creator God. It's his personal favorite. He does not refer to him as boss or president or king or chancellor, but father. Now it's true that for some of us, that is not the most appealing or refreshing or heartwarming way to think or to refer to God. And you know, frankly, oftentimes it stems from maybe our own disappointment with our own father. It's not always the case, but sometimes. But maybe it could be if that's not an attractive image or thought of who God is. Maybe you need to give God another try by thinking different things about what a true father is. Or at least a father like Jesus thinks about his father. If you spend enough time with Jesus and you hear how he thinks and how he speaks to and what he says to his father, it will actually reshape what you believe a good father would be like. It might take several years of shadowing Jesus, but it will happen. One of the better environments for rethinking is private, quiet places alone with your Heavenly Father. I wonder if that's why Jesus points to it. I wonder what Jesus' relationship with his earthly dad was. At some point, Joseph isn't mentioned anymore. All kinds of speculation. Why it would be. But it's possible, possible, that Jesus grows out without an earthly father model. And so Jesus would understand that. You see, when Jesus thinks father, he thinks protector and provider. He thinks patience and kindness. Someone who is unfailingly loving and not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Someone who doesn't demand his own way. He isn't irritable and keeps no record of being wrong. He never rejoices with injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out. His love never gives up. He never loses faith in his children. He always is hopeful, endures through every circumstances. Does that sound at all familiar? It's what God prompted Paul to write about in 1 Corinthians 13. Often use it weddings. Not meant for weddings. Go use it for weddings if you want. Just not meant for that. I think it's Paul reflecting on the love that God the Father has for humanity and so consistent with how Jesus thinks of him. But you know, I think Jesus recognizes the challenge that's there for us in this, in that we can't actually see God in human form 
when we do communicate with him. Anybody seen God manifest himself in human form? That's what I thought, me either. But here's the thing. Jesus will go on to tell us in another place that if you really get to know Jesus, it's the same thing as getting to know the Father because they're exactly the same. Jesus is an earthly manifestation of what the Father is like. So get to know Jesus. It would be good reason to spend some alone time with him, to get to know him, because you get to know the Father in that way. In other words, if you go to the private and quiet place consistently, you'll discover over time that although you may not see God with your eyes, it will become as if he is physically present there with you. Do you believe that? The truth is, he is there in all of his fullness. We just don't have the type of optical device in our body to be able to see him. But we are told in scripture that one day we will have that optical device and we will see him as he really is. Why not now, as best we can, in that quiet, private place? For me, for almost 40 years, that quiet, private place has been a closet. Yeah. For several years, when we were a young family living from paycheck to paycheck and living in modest homes, my closet had just enough room for our clothes and a chair to be sandwiched between them with the door. Very claustrophobic. Not much room. It was the only quiet place with three energetic children under the age of six. Today, my closet, and it's a literal closet, it's not a metaphor, it's a literal closet, has enough room for me to lay flat on the floor. That space has become holy because of how my father has met me there and revealed himself to me on so many occasions. Now, I've found other spaces along the way that work well too, but it's that closet and it's the memories that are there with him. I just keep going back because of what happens in that closet. Can I I state my opinion on something? You don't have to listen to it. You usually don't, so that's fine. I honestly don't know how a person can truly follow Jesus as an apprentice, as a student, as a learner of his, and not find yourself consistently and regularly alone with him. I often hear this, and this is, this is really good that you, that you do this. I often hear people say, well, that's in my car as I'm commuting. Yay, fantastic. But I hope you're still thinking about driving. <laughs> I, I hope you're thinking about like, watching other cars around you. It's, it's good, it's just not the same. But here's our struggle. We actually don't like being alone. We don't like the thoughts we have sometimes. We don't like that idea of well, what would, what would God, would God, like, it'll be disappointing. I promise you, I promise you, if my experience is normative, it is a revolutionary way to build this friendship with God and be in, transformed internally. Jesus goes on. He says, rather, when you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words over and over again. 
Well, this whole babbling idea was this. In most religions of the world, and it was so in Jesus' culture, the sincerity of the communication with their deity was measured by much and more. In other words, the more passionate and emotive the communication, the more frequent it happened, the more sincere the prayer must be. And the deity would look on that and go, good on you. Here's a blessing for you for that. When Jesus says this to the crowd, possibly their memories go to a story they all would have been told as children from 1 Kings 18. You might remember it as well. It's the story of Elijah. Elijah is sent into the world as God's hand-picked prophet to tell his people that they're wandering from him. Their eyes have been captured by the wonder of foreign gods, one in particular, Baal. And uh, they are begin to follow the prophets in the religion of Baal. Elijah comes along and says, I'm going to call you back to God. I'm going to invite you back here. So let's have a bit of a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. We'll build an altar up there. We'll throw a cow on top of it. And you, prophets, 450 of you, you kind of pray and ask Baal to come and ignite that thing. And if that, if that happens, that's pretty impressive. And you're probably worth following. So here's what happens. That occurs, and in the morning, the prophets of Baal begin to walk around, and we're told, dance around it, and they begin to shout to Baal. They do that all morning long. All morning long. About noon or so, nothing's happened, and they decide to amp it up a little bit, which is usually what happens in these things, if that's the God you have, and they shout louder, and they dance harder, and then, I don't know, maybe mid-afternoon or so, because nothing's happening, they go this way. They bust out the knives and the swords, and they start cutting themselves so that they're bleeding to show this non-existent God of theirs that they're really, really serious and really, really intent. By the end of the day, after having done this eight, nine, ten hours, whatever it is, Elijah comes along, fire from God comes down, and some of them got too close to the fire, and they had like really bad burns. They got torched. I wonder if, as Jesus says, you don't have to babble, whether they thought back to that experience and went, I I guess you don't have to do that. Now, Jesus is not saying this because it's like bad. It breaks some law or some rule to pray passionately or to pray lots, or to invite the whole world on Facebook to join you in your prayer endeavor. There's nothing wrong with that. You just don't have to. You don't have to. How do I know that? Because of what he says in verse 8, don't be like them. In other words, that's not really a smart way to pray. For your Father knows exactly what you need before you ask Him. Now, this is deep stuff right now. Hold on. If your father already knows what you need, do you need to ask him? It's actually an answer. Do you have to ask him? If he already knows, do you have to ask him? No, you don't. You don't have to ask him. He invites you to ask him. He says, go ahead and ask I already know. I know what's best. I know what's right. I know how this goes. I know, but I'm inviting you in because we're talking together about something that we are mutually both very, very, very interested in. He is, as our Father, is always interested in what we're interested in. 
Do you know him that way? And so he comes along and says, hey, go ahead and ask, though I already know what you need. But together, we're going to walk through this and we'll see how it works out. But go ask me. But I already know what you need. So, you really can post your prayer concerns on Facebook or Instagram and encourage everyone to join you and pray, but you do not need to. Because you are actually having an intelligent conversation when you converse with your Father about matters that are of mutual concern. So then Jesus says, here is a better way to think about communication with God. A better way to think about it. Or possibly Jesus is encouraging them, think different things about communication with God. Pray like this, or think differently. Think this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need, and forgive us our sins, so that as we have forgiven those who sin against us, and don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. You know, there's so much there. We could, again, we have in the past, we could, again, dissect that, and it would be just an amazing discussion together. But today, I just want to look at the 30,000-foot level of this. What Jesus is not saying is, pray like this. Well, that's what it says, pray like this. That's not what it means. It's not saying, pray these exact words. Though they are fantastic words to memorize and recite. They are fantastic. Nor is he saying you should paraphrase them, but please follow a certain pattern or formula for effective communication with God. Not saying that either. Although there are wonderful sequences of thought in this. It's not what he's saying. I think it might be better to think of it this way, and maybe this is what Jesus is saying. Maybe Jesus is saying, when you think about prayer, think different things. Maybe think this. This is how I talk to my father. Maybe Jesus is saying, like, when, I, when my father and I talk, this is how we talk. This is the stuff we talk about. This is the way the conversation goes between me and my father. And you might want to think about, like, that kind of way to pray with your father. You see, Jesus would, might be saying... I address him as my father because he and I have a very personal relationship. I don't think of him as my boss or my king or my creator, though he is my creator. He is the creator, rather. I think of him as my father, and he thinks of me as his son. But here's the other thing. I'm also keenly aware that he's unlike any other being and that he is perfect, or to use the term that he would use, holy. And so our relationship is casual, like a father and a son. But I respect and revere the kind of character he has and simply who he is. So there's a deep reverence for him when I speak with him. I also, Jesus might say, I also know what he wants in the way things operate here on earth and that he would long for things to operate on earth like they are in heaven and right now. So we talk a lot about how important and wonderful it is that heaven should be experienced here and how it's not just a place that people go to when they die. That is why when I see people who are sick, Jesus might say, I talk to my father and I ask them to heal them because that's the way it will be in heaven. And I want it to be here on earth like it is in heaven and so does my father. And occasionally there are people who have succumbed to death. And you know what I do? 
I go to my father and I ask him to raise them back to life again. Because in heaven there is no death. There's life. And I know even if my father would say no, that there's, I've come to earth to provide a way that even if they die and they don't come back to life here, they come back to life there. And so I pray for people to come back to life. I pray for addictions to be broken. I pray for families to be redeemed and relationships to be healed. That's the kind of conversation my father and I have because in heaven, there's nothing but redemption. It's all redeemed. And so I pray for things, how they'll be in heaven, that they'll be here now, just like this, right here, right now. I pray that people's, people will have increased love for him. Unrestrained, unapologetic, worship-filled love. Because that's what's going to happen in heaven. May your your reality of heaven come here now. That's how my father and I pray. And my father and I talk about meeting my physical needs. I depend on the kindness of people so in so many ways and live pretty modestly. And I'm thankful for the way that he takes care of me. And when I do express gratitude for kind of the modest things that I have, it actually keeps me from craving more and keeps me from being selfish with what I have. And inevitably... My father and I talk about temptations, the temptations I face, Jesus might say, and how the evil one lurks at every corner trying to take me out. It just shores up my confidence that my father will see me through those times when he and I talk about them and he reminds me of who I am in him and that I will defeat the evil one once and forever. And then we talk together about the power of forgiveness. We don't talk about my need for forgiveness for I don't need that. But what about how I'm going to give my life on a cross in just a little while? that will open the door for people to be forgiven of the most unthinkable, horrific acts against each other and me and him. And how powerful it is when people get honest with themselves and recognize their mistakes, humble themselves, and sincerely ask for forgiveness. The kind of love that forgives is the most powerful kind of love there is. And so my father and I talk a lot about forgiveness. A lot about forgiveness. And what's on the line with my death. In fact, it's like Jesus pauses for a second and said, can we talk a little more about forgiveness? Verse 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. And go, yikes. Now, that's got to be clear here. He is not talking about salvation kind of forgiveness. In fact, the truth is sometimes we can't forgive people till we say yes to his forgiveness and experience it ourselves. And then we have the power to forgive others. What Jesus may very well be saying is, as he says in other places in Scripture, that when we truly grasp what we've been forgiven of, there's a great vitality to forgive other people. It could be said maybe like this. If you're forgiven little, it means you forgive little. If you're forgiven much, you forgive much. It's just how it works. I think that's maybe what he's pointing to. But it's such an important deal to him, and it's all part of the conversation that he has with his father. It's a marvelous thing. From there, and we won't put it up, he talks about fasting in the same kind of way. Don't do it to show off. Well, we don't, some of us fast, some don't. It's not so much a part of our culture like it was in Jesus' culture. But maybe something that's a corollary to it, maybe something similar would be uh, the way that we serve. Uh, you know, maybe here or in the community or wherever it is. And this oftentimes happens. You know, we serve, we give ourselves out, we start with just the right motives, we want to do good things, and then it gets hard, and then it gets inconvenient, and no one thanks us for it, and nobody gives us an attaboy, pat on the back, and we go, oh, it's just not worth it. And then if we're not careful, we start to serve in such a way that it's very clear to everybody else, you do not want to be here. You are not having fun. And Jesus might say, well, well 
okay, so what if you just kept serving, but you did it with a reflection on the motives behind it, and you keep sacrificing, and everyone thinks you're having a great time because you look so good? No, self-denial always makes Jesus look good. It does. And maybe that's what he's saying that we can apply that to. In all these things, Jesus is trying to bring life to us in this section. He's saying there's a real tyranny to live to be admired by people. It's just a tyranny. And if you come and live in my kingdom, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just shut that off. You can. You can live in freedom and wonder, and you can enjoy me. But in order to get there, you have to get to the place where you increasingly understand my flat-out admiration for you. It might take 10, 20, 30 years of those private, quiet, alone times with him where he reveals more and more of himself. And then we realize, I already have all your favor. I already am admired by you. I'm loved by you. I no longer have to perform, be admired by other people. And there is freedom. So much freedom in that. And this is what he wants us to experience. I believe that is the reward that he offers. Now, Jesus... Thank you for the wonder of the reward that you offer, for the goodness that is in you and how you, how you reward us in ways that, uh, well, other rewards just aren't the same. Thank you for that, good God. We're grateful for that. Continue to teach us. Take us into places that are deep with you, consistently so. And we'll thank you for the reward of that. Amen.